So a few months ago, I was listening to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. And if you are a fan of old movies, old television, old show business, uh, that is a podcast you will love. And it's one of my all-time favorites. Just has some guests on that uh, are so unmainstream yet, and some mainstream ones, he, but he he's so curious and interested about this old history. Uh, It's truly a work of love, and I think that's part of the reason why uh, Gilbert's podcast is so great. Anyways, uh, right before he passed away, he had Karina Longworth on, and I had heard about Karina's podcast, You Must Remember This. I had read about it, I think in The New Yorker, heard about it, I'd never listened to it. And so based on how she came across in the interview, I thought, wow, she sounds fantastic. Uh, she, she She's together. She knows what she's talking about. And, and the praise that Frank and Gilbert were uh, putting on her podcast. So I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tune in. So I went and I looked through the many, many seasons that she'd already done. And I picked this Charles Manson uh, season because of this Beach Boys connection. And that was the very first episode I'd listened to. And then I went back and started at the beginning of the season and now I'm kind of working my way through the podcasts, uh, every, every single episode. They're, they've all been fantastic. Uh, and, you know, fans of old movies or just well-done podcasts, you're looking for something to listen to, I really do highly recommend this one. So I just thought, hey, I'm going to turn folks on to that, and the way to do that is to not talk about her whole many, many seasons of podcasts, but to mostly focus on this one music uh, crossover episode. So here we are. Uh, this is she. She wrote this and, and recorded this years ago. So uh, I appreciate her kind of uh, brush getting this back into her uh, front of her memory. She, she's I'm sure working on a new season now and got a million things going on. And I appreciate her sort of taking the way back machine with me here. And uh, we go back to 1968 and to a young you know Dennis Wilson Beach Boys drummer uh, meeting Charles Manson and. Uh, and what that means. So hope you enjoy this. Hope you're having a good summer off to a good start and uh, keep in touch. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Karina Longworth, good morning and welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. The podcast, You Must Remember This, and folks can go to youmustrememberthispodcast.com for information or to listen. It is described as the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I love it. It's extremely well done. Uh, Can you just give us some background where you you grew up, and can you put your finger on uh, some specific thing or things that ignited your love of movies or old Hollywood? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 80s, and old Hollywood didn't seem that old then. Um, You know, a lot of the major stars were still around, and I just have these memories of, like, whatever Elizabeth Taylor was doing that day was being reported on the local news. And, um, you know, when Rock Hudson died, I remember my mom having this, like, very serious conversation with me about him and, and what AIDS was. 
Um, and so in a very real way, the kind of the stars of the past were how I was learning about the world. And then I, I went away um, for college. I went to art school in Chicago and San Francisco, and I was, you know, learning about different things. But I, I kind of just kept gravitating back towards um, this Hollywood of the past and the mythology of it and then trying to separate myth from reality. And so I ended up going to graduate school at NYU and getting a degree in cinema studies where I focused um, very specifically on what is considered classical Hollywood, which is basically the late 1920s until about the mid 60s. Um, and then I sort of took a detour and became a film critic. <laughs> and then I um, really burnt out on new movies and the culture of contemporary Hollywood. And I just wanted to try to find a way to get back to doing what I love to do, which was doing research about the history of Hollywood and watching these old movies. And so, um, you know, I tried a couple different things. And then I, I kind of landed on this idea of doing a podcast because it was 2014. And I was finding myself not really being that interested in reading websites or reading blogs anymore. And I was getting a lot more of my information just from listening to podcasts. And so I figured that as somebody who listened to podcasts, I'd never felt like there were enough podcasts to listen to, like there were never enough episodes of the podcast that I really loved. And so I just felt like nobody would be bothered if I started a podcast. Like It felt like there was room in the marketplace for it. And how many episodes are there now? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'd have to. I'd have to check. I mean, there's probably close to 200. Yeah. I've been doing it since 2014. And in that time, I've done between one and three seasons a year, and the seasons range from six episodes to 25 episodes. Yeah. There's episodes about Sinatra and Judy Garland and Madonna and Howard Hughes and Humphrey Bogart and Marlon Brando and Bruce Lee, and there's seasons about MGM and the Second World War and the Blacklist and Bela Gosi and Boris Karloff and Sammy Davis and Dean Martin. There's tons and tons of stuff. And... Uh, I really do recommend folks eventually listen to all of them, which is what I'm working my way through. And I recommend as a starting place, go through, pick an episode or a season that sounds appealing uh, to you, and then just start there. And eventually, I think you will end up um, getting addicted, as, as I am. So what I did was I started mm -hmm. with the season called Charles Manson's Hollywood. Uh, it's a 12-episode season. And it really drew me in. Like I said earlier, partly just because what you do, you do so well. So what drew you into picking Manson? Because, you know, MGM or The Blacklist or Second World War, these things are so different from Charles Manson. But the idea of looking at the Charles Manson story through how he brushed against Hollywood or how the reaction of the Hollywood community, great idea for a fresh perspective on an often told story. Uh, so how, what is that just the light bulb just went off and let's do this? I was never really interested in Manson or true crime in general. I'm not like a murder guy. Basically, what happened was that I was watching a Doris Day movie marathon on, on Turner Classic Movies, and I looked up her Wikipedia profile, as one does, and I saw, you know, this sort of paragraph in her profile about how her son, Terry Melcher, had owned the house where Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate had lived, or he had been the previous tenant. He had sublet it to them. And how some people felt that when Charles Manson sent his family to that house that night, they were looking for Terry Milcher. And I had never heard that before. And it just seemed so crazy to me that there was such a short degree of separation between Doris Day and Charles Manson. And so I thought there's got to be something there. I'd at least like to learn more about it. And so then I read this book called Manson by Jeff Gwynn, and that made me understand that there was something there. And so for me, it was it was about 
exactly what you're talking about. It's about taking this story that people feel like they know and they know everything about and showing it through this perspective of Hollywood and and making people understand all of these things, both the Hollywood aspects and the Manson aspects in a different way. One of the things about the whole series that I really appreciate was you sort of walked this fine line. Clearly, Manson has this super magnetic personality, but you don't romanticize this. Like, as a little kid, I was, you know, freaked out by Manson. You know, I'm a little too young to have under to know when it all happened but there was just this sort of you know it's just the creepiest thing really that's one of the creepiest thing that's ever happened you're very careful to portray him not sympathetically well i don't i wouldn't know how to be sympathetic to him yeah. i feel like maybe it was because of reading jeff Gwynn's book which i think is a masterpiece of of nonfiction. but i would just feel like i understood him as as a con artist and i under i recognized aspects of of him and, and men that I've been involved with myself in terms of this guy who like has this whole shtick and it can be, uh, especially when you're very young and you're kind of looking to escape reality, that can be very attractive. And then it you have to kind of spend some time with a person like that to understand the extent to which they're dangerous and at the very least um, capable of really manipulating you and hurting you. And so I felt like I saw right through him pretty quickly. I mean, I was surprised to hear your descriptions about how Manson was able to hold the followers, and particularly the females, so completely. And there was, of course, tremendous amounts of LSD involved, like daily amounts for for weeks on end. But doing the research, were you also surprised? And can you explain this hold on people? Um, No, I wasn't that surprised, again, because I was a a 20-year-old girl, and so I I remember being attracted to really bad guys. Um, And, um, you know, there is, you know, sometimes you just, when you're very young, you're very susceptible to people who are um, charismatic, who tell you what to do. I have a 17-year-old daughter, and you're freaking me out right now. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The research is very well done. A lot of people can do research. What you do is you sort of take this, what you've described, this overarching knowledge of all of Hollywood history. And so when you discuss a movie or an actor or just a news event, you put it in this context of that Hollywood history. And that's, to me, that's your gift. So how long does it take to do the research to put one of these seasons together? It really depends. I would say minimum six months, but lately I've been kind of budgeting based on the amount of time it's taken me in the past, and I'm finding it's taking a lot longer now because I want to go deeper. You know, you said anybody can do research, and I guess that's true, but most people don't do the kind of research that I do, Um, and if they did, there'd be more podcasts that sounded like mine. (laughs) I really try to read everything I can read on a topic, and I go way beyond internet research to buying out-of-print books, going to archives, going to research libraries, buying a lot of um, vintage magazines. So, you know, with the Manson season, I honestly, I can't remember how long it took me to research that one because that was seven years ago. But the most recent um, season I did, I started researching it in September of 2021. And I was still working on the the research and writing all the way up until when I was finishing the last episode in at the end of May 2022. Yeah. So six months or so of research could equal six or eight or 12 hours of of podcast. So it's these things are really packed uh, and you're and you're a great editor. Let me remind folks Karina Longworth is our guest and the podcast and the website is called You Must Remember This 
podcast.com. So let's tell this story. Spring 1968, Dennis Wilson is, I think he's 23-year-old, and you paint this picture of this guy as already sort of a broken person, and he picks up these two girls hitchhiking and takes them home, and they don't know who he is. They don't know he's a, he's a, the drummer of the Beach Boys. And the next time he comes home, Charles Manson is in his house, and there's a bunch of topless Manson girls in the house. And you say that Dennis says to Charles Manson, are you going to hurt me? Which to me is so scary. And I mean, he sort of sees it all right there. And it's so bizarre. How do you think Dennis knew or how do you think he saw that? I don't know that he he knew really what was completely in store for him with Charles Manson. I think he was more like, are you a home invader? You know, in the way that we would think of it today. Have you come here to kill me and steal all my stuff? But, you know, pretty quickly, I think that he was sort of taken in by Manson's whole act. And Dennis was looking for an identity outside of the Beach Boys, which he didn't feel like the rest of the band took his contribution seriously. And it was not a great time for the Beach Boys in the late 60s. They were sort of considered passe at that time. And so it was a time when a lot of people were looking for gurus. The Beach Boys had toured with the Maharishi. And so he saw in Manson somebody who could kind of be his own guru. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. One of the things that I did not realize, I mean, I knew Manson played the guitar, I knew he wrote songs, I, and there was, I knew about the Beach Boys connection, but I didn't realize how seriously Manson wanted to be a rock star, and he had interest over the years from several people connected to record labels. How much do you think the interest was f- from people's legitimate interest in Manson's music, and how much was it just from they wanted to be around Manson and his females? I don't think Manson's music itself was special, but I think there was this idea that he was tapping into something that was countercultural that could make people money. And that, you know, I mean, all of the entertainment industry at this time, music, movies, a lot of it was older guys trying to figure out what their kids generation was into so that they could sell those products because what they had been doing wasn't working anymore. And so there was this this really sort of thirsty <laughs> questing for trying to find like what the kids would be into and and I think Manson represented that. And then of course like Manson was a pimp. I mean, he learned from pimps in prison and so he had all these women who were under his control and he would tell them to have sex with men that he wanted something from. So certainly I think that was um, difficult to resist for many people. Yeah. Uh, again, it's a 12-part series, and folks should listen, because it's, the ins and outs are truly bizarre. And the people who come in and out of Manson's sphere, it's an incredible who's who of, of entertainment people. Uh, Dennis introduces, I think you say, Neil Young to Charles Manson's music. He certainly introduces the rest of the Beach Boys, who are immediately all creeped out. Uh, it, does <laughs> seem, it does seem a little bit like Dennis believed in in Manson's music. Is that is that wrong? I don't know to what extent he believed that Manson had unique musical talent. But again, I think he felt like Manson definitely had something and that maybe you could take what Manson had on a personality level and you could merge it with a musical talent of these other people. And, you know, you mm. could get a kind of alchemy out of it. Interesting. Yeah, there is a certain point in the 60s where you can tell that People are desperately searching for this new youth market product and some great complete misses to the bullseye produce some what are now wonderful things. But of course, they were made only with a you know dollar sign in mind. It's kind of an 
interesting time for for you know with movies and, and, and with music so manson had this real mix of influences like dale carnegie's uh, famous book was manson smart oh i think he was brilliant in his way for sure he was uneducated but extremely savvy and really able to he was like a sponge and i'm sure there's a more scientific word for that but he was somebody who was able to come into contact with a person or a book like how to win friends and influence people and absorb it very fast and then regurgitate it as though it was his own idea yeah that is like the perfect con man recipe right there yeah totally yeah so uh, eventually one of the songs that manson sort of worked up and uh, I guess made a demo of. I don't know if that's a, if what we hear is a demo, but you can hear Manson. There's a snippet of it in, in your podcast. Uh, this song, which I think Manson called "Cease to Exist," and Dennis and the rest of the Beach Boys turned it into this song called "Never Learn Not to Love." Late 1968, it came out as a B-side. It was on the 2020 album. They played it on the Mike Douglas show, and it's. I like the song. I've always liked it. It's kind of a odd, weird 1960s thing. So. Was I mean, you go into this in the podcast, but explain, was Manson upset that when the record came out, the songwriting credit just said Dennis Wilson? And what did they give Charles Manson in exchange for his contribution? You know, Manson certainly was not hanging out with Dennis Wilson out of charity or any kind of altruistic concept of friendship. He wanted something from him. And what he wanted was he thought that Dennis Wilson could open the door to fame and fortune for him. And so... Charles Manson's a bad guy, but you have to kind of, you know, give him credit, like for the fact that he was genuinely betrayed by Dennis Wilson. You can understand how he felt that way because he did write this song and then the Beach Boys took it and recorded it as their own and cut him out of the process. So he was certainly upset by that. And he wanted some kind of payback for sure. Yeah. Uh, eventually, Dennis moves out of his own house. That was the only way Dennis could get rid of the Manson family was to just move and leave no forwarding address and let his landlord deal with it. I mean, uh, it's it's truly- I think that was kind of like a typical rock star thing, though. You know, I mean, I like Dennis had been a rock star for many years, even though he was only 23. And, you know, I think to some extent, famous people are used to like letting, you know, a suit take care of something for them. Hmm. Um, And so this was a version of that. He wasn't going to have the confrontation himself. Hmm. One of the things about the podcast, the whole, all of the seasons that you're telling stories that have their initial telling usually through a Hollywood PR machine or through rumor mills or gossip and they've so they've all been told many times from different point of views and you like you said you sort of untangle the truth do you ever get contacted with pushback from people who were there or were involved or just partisan fans who just disagree with your conclusions um occasionally but very, very, very rarely. Usually, you know, most of the stories I tell are about people who are no longer alive. So there's not that many people who were there who have anything to say about them. But, you hmm. know, occasionally somebody will be like, you know, you based your thing on these other sources, but I was there. And let me tell you, like, you missed this angle. But I, you know, I really care quite a bit about accuracy. And if I'm not sure what the truth is, usually I say, this source says this, and this source says this, and, you know, this is what I think is more likely. Yeah, you often 
will tell two different versions of the story. You know, it's like one of those uh, Rashomon stories. Just two people who were there both claim something completely different happened. So, yeah, who knows? But, yeah, you do a great job with that. So not soon after all of this, Manson's followers commit the Tate-LaBianca murders, and the rest of the season explains all of that. And there's some real surprises to me. I mean, I read Helter Skelter long time ago, but there were a lot of surprises. It Partly that, and tell me if I've got this right, because I don't remember too accurately, Manson killed a guy over a drug deal, and the rest of these murders were sort of, and that's what started the rest of these murders happening. They wanted to create some more murders to make it look like Charlie's murder was part of a string of murders maybe committed by the Black Panthers. The whole thing is so insane. Is that right? There's there's kind of two things that started the whole string of murders. One is that Charlie was doing this, trying to do this drug deal with um, a, a black gentleman who went by the name Lots of Papa. And um, Charlie shot him in the back and thought he was dead. So then the other thing that happened was that they were also trying to do this mescaline deal with this uh, music teacher named Gary Hinman, who lived in Topanga Canyon. And Manson and a couple of the girls, and I think Bobby Beausoleil, they like sort of trapped him in his house and tortured him (laughs) and then killed him. Um, And so... Manson was concerned about, you know, basically trying. He he wanted to start a race war, which is something we haven't talked about. And so he he really felt like like the answer to his problems was um, to encourage black Americans to rise up against white Americans. And then there would be a war and then Manson could basically become king. And so after these two incidents of violence, he he felt like this was kind of his in to spark this race war because people would blame these incidents on the Black Panthers if he and and his gang did things like write the word pig in blood on the wall. And so the Tate-LaBianca murders basically happened because they felt like the race war wasn't happening fast enough. Yes, so completely insane. You mentioned Terry Melcher. So let's just focus on that for a second and pin that down. So Terry Melcher had shown some interest in Charles Manson and then kind of went away. And so there's this idea that Charles Manson was mad at Terry Melcher. And I remember hearing this as a kid, a Beach Boys fan and a kid. So Charles Manson sent those people to that house to kill Terry Melcher because it was his house. So set the record straight on that. Well, there's a lot of, you know, sort of conflicting ideas about that. I mean, I think most accounts suggest that Charlie knew that Terry had moved out. And in fact, um, Terry's girlfriend at the time, Candace Bergen, she said that they had moved out and they had moved to one of Doris Day's houses in Malibu. And they had evidence that the Manson family had come to that house and had sort of like moved stuff around, had moved their telescope off of their deck. So that that there's that side of the story that Manson absolutely knew that Terry Melcher was not at that house that night. But I don't think he knew that Sharon Tate was there. Um, I don't think he really knew who Sharon Tate was. There's some accounts that, you know, maybe they encountered each other once before, but he did not send his family there specifically to kill her. What he did understand for sure was that there were people who had money there, and he felt like it was a good bet that the people who were in that house were famous enough that there would be some kind of news story if they were found dead. Hmm. Bizarre. So I can only imagine what 
it would have been like to be Terry Melcher after that happened, and Dennis as well. And you sort of suggest, I think, that Dennis was so, you know, this is really the beginning of Dennis's downfall is because he was just so shaken, or at least it's possible that he was so shaken by his association with Manson, he just never got over it. I think both Terry and Dennis had kind of PTSD. Um, You know, they felt that they had narrowly escaped being killed. And, you know, the Manson trials went on for a long time, and a lot of his followers were never put in prison and were still kind of holding up the, the Charlie Manson torch for a long time. So there was this sense of everybody who, amongst everyone who had been in contact with these people that like they could kill again they're still out there they could still come get me so i think there's something very understandable about that and i also think that dennis had other things going on as well you know he had a fragile emotional state based on his family and his experience in the beach boys and his kind of desire to be seen as his own man and his own artist and you know he had drug problems alcohol problems and so um the rest of his story i think is pretty sad yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 unbelievably sad. And I think you can't really overstate how important the the Manson murders were in sort of ending the 60s and, you know, just in changing the culture of Hollywood and the way just everything policing conservatism is, you know, it just, it just boosted this. It just turned the country, you know, it, like in, in a rarely does something happen that turns the whole country in a different direction. I really do believe that the Manson story uh, does that. And you explain that and you explain uh, Dennis's death. You sort of tell the story of what happened uh, and you give details and perspective on that. One of the things that, that uh, makes this podcast on a whole so interesting to me anyway is that, you know, it's because it's Hollywood. It's all, well, not all, but it's packed with sex, sexuality, adultery, money, ego, you know, all of the things that are necessary for good drama. I mean, is it is it too far to, to say, because I sense this, that you in really enjoy that? Well, I think it was Luella Parsons, the old Hollywood gossip columnist, who said something like, this kind of stuff happens everywhere, but you don't hear about it. Like, the milkman Mm. is having an affair with the banker's wife in every town, but because they're not famous, like, we just don't talk about it. (laughs) So I I do think that on some level, all of the stuff that you're talking about that is part of these Hollywood stories is... It's American lives. It's human lives writ large. It's just on a larger scale. And and we care about it more because we care about the movies and we care about the music and we care about what these people are giving us, you know, sort of on an artistic level and an entertainment level. Yeah, you're, I guess you're, you're right. But I, they're definitely having, you know, more romance and more drugs than than I, I think my my milkman is anyway. Um <laughs> When I was a kid, my milkman used to come in the back door and put the milk into the refrigerator if it was a hot day because he didn't want to leave it out on the on the back stoop when it would it would get hot. So did this season freak people out at all? Did people, you know, because it's like to me, it was like it kind of scary. Yeah, I don't I don't really know. I don't really remember. But for me, when I was doing the research, I remember not being that scared or freaked out by like the murder stuff (laughs) as much as I was really disturbed by um, finding out more about Roman Polanski's relationship with Sharon Tate and really feeling a lot of empathy for her as a woman who was not really treated like a full human being by the man she loved. 
Yeah, you you go on about her and about what happens to him, and I, I agree. She's a very sympathetic and uh, unusual character, yeah. So, once again, it's Karina Longworth, and the podcast is called You Must Remember This, and the website is called You Must Remember This Podcast.com. And just pick, you know, listen to this season or pick an episode or a season you like and, and jump into the deep end. So, what's coming up next uh, for the podcast? So, I just finished a season called Erotic 80s, which is about sex and Hollywood movies in the 1980s. Um, and I'm going to do a follow-up season called Erotic 90s, about sex and Hollywood movies in the 1990s. Well, like I said, this is just, you know, it's really one of my favorite podcasts, and it's so well done, so well researched. And, you know, you bring this sort of overarching uh, knowledge and passion to it. And I, I, you know, so congratulations and to everyone listening, hugely recommended. Thanks for visiting with us. Thank you so much for having me. Cease to Never had a lesson in